Welcome to Psychodrama Podcast. This is your co-host, Katie. And this is your co-host, Leo, which rhymes with video. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, Leo? Pretty good. Uh, you know, we went on a first name basis this day. today, it looks like it. Really changed things up. Absolutely. What How was your, your past two weeks? I was focusing on the rhyming. You were asking me about my week. Things are going <laughs> okay. I am glad to have Labor Day. I can tell you that much. That's nice. What about you? You're in Portland. There's been a lot going on there. Yeah, it's been, well, we have, uh, it's literally 101, two days of um, some sort of protest every night and to different uh, magnitude. And it's been, it's been, it's been interesting. It's been tough for many reasons. I think uh, there's a lot of fraying at the edges for a lot of people in different ways so yeah it's been it's been tough but it's been okay the weather has been nice and kind of typical portland we kind of just go have a, a good day and then do our chores and hike and do a thing and whatever you need to do and then at night those who are out for protests go and do so and then who knows how things end up is your campus back in action have you we, gone back to school we are we're doing a hybrid model so um on the, on most of the grad campus is not. My program, we are mostly remote. Uh, any labs for the Health Sciences College, um, any labs that are absolutely necessary, mu- person must be there, or people are allowed back for that with multiple layers of um, assurances and protocols. And the undergrad campus is back, um, but like many other universities, they have um, social distancing and uh, a lot of measures in order to try to maintain the students away from each other while also having uh, some live classes classes so yeah kind of the hybrid model and we'll see how it ends up that's what's been going on here i don't work at a university anymore i'm a therapist now but there are three colleges near where i live and most of them are kind of in a hybrid situation and so as a therapist though there are certainly college students um parents of college students who have mental health concerns and so that's why i was really glad that Dr. Helen Sue mm-hmm. agreed to join us today to talk about college mental health. There's been a lot in the news talking Absolutely. about student behavior, administration behavior, looking kind of at a larger level and how to manage the mental health concerns amidst all of that. Definitely. What well, can you tell I'll, us about Dr. Sue? I'd be happy to. So glad you asked. <laughs> Dr. Helen Sue is a staff psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University. She is a past president of the Asian American Psychological Association and an advisory board member of the JED Foundation, which focuses on college-age students and mental health and youth. Dr. Sue is a consultant and presenter nationwide on topics addressing youth and young adult mental health. She was a consultant for that show, 13 Reasons Why, which was just huge on Netflix. Dr. Sue has been a director of clinical training, supervising psychology and counseling students since 2003. Prior to shifting into college counseling, Dr. Sue was a clinician and supervisor of clinical services in K-12 public schools and community mental health and worked in a private practice in parenting education. Dr. Sue is the chair of the American Psychological Association Minority Fellowship Program Training Advisory Committee and completed a term on the APA Committee on Sexual Orientation and Gender Expression. Her current work includes college mental health outreach and counseling, improving access to culturally responsive psychological care for diverse communities, mentorship of future leaders in multicultural mental health and grief support. So she just has a ton of expertise Mm -hmm. and we're grateful to have her here. Hi, Helen. We're so happy to have you here today. How have you been 
doing during the pandemic? Yes, I'm glad to be here. And I'm doing as well as can be expected in a pandemic uh, and a wildfire smoky zone, but I'm safe at home. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, are, has the air near you caused trouble for you in terms of not being able to go outside as much or anything like that? Absolutely. Um, our new thing now is everybody checks the air quality before you decide what you can do for the day. Uh, and um, how long has it been going like that? It's been a little over two weeks now because these are multiple fires, so it's tough. Uh, going outside has been one of the things we recommend and I use for coping, and now um, that's definitely been a little bit limited. One thing that we've been asking people who have been on our show since the pandemic started, which is actually I think was starting with our fourth episode or so, is how has it affected your work life? Um, how have you been coping? Have you found any particular mental health strategies that listeners could benefit from hearing? Mm -hmm. I definitely have found that um, making the effort to still socialize, even if it is Zoom, and I'm not someone who ever loved video um, contact much to begin with, but, you know, telehealth has been a gift. Appreciation and gratitude, like reminding myself how fortunate that I don't love Zoom therapy, but I'm so thankful that it's available, you know, not only for my work, but still being able to support people and do what I love and to see friends and have gratitude for the upside. Like actually, you know, there's been increased effort to use snail mail, save the USPS, mm -hmm. and do Zoom meetings yeah. with friends who are far away. And that's actually been a little bit of a silver lining. Have you been all virtual for doing therapy since March? Yes, since mid-March, it's all been remote therapy, um, with the exception of occasional day call shifts on campus, which we rotate. And you're seeing all college students for therapy, right? Yes, we're 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 seeing all undergraduate through graduate, so they're about like eighteen to 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 where I am at midlife. <laughs> and what are some of the issues that are, or have you noticed that if you think about your the time before uh, pandemic, and then the cases that you're seeing currently, um, have you noted a marked difference in the number of in the type of distress or the quality and quantity of distress that you're seeing? Um, given in context that, you know, it's not the same because we're away for many of them, but I wonder if there's any significant difference that you've noticed. Mm, we've definitely noticed an increase in, well, we've always had a lot of students with anxiety. That's a whole other thing is the rising rates of anxiety nationwide for this generation, but it's intensified, mm. right? Like if you talk about a crisis being a situation that exceeds someone's current coping mechanisms, well, that's all us, all like everybody right now. Right. And the way these this all happened, you know, that students were sent home with, with very little notice. Um, and of course, this whole situation has magnified every economic uh, inequity that mm. existed before. So students with less resources are definitely having even more intense like anxiety and mood disorders than others. Although across the board, this is just developmentally, you know, I think at this life stage when they're supposed to be growing and learning and just really doing a lot of new things, meeting a lot of new people. Um, this has been a terrible time. Yeah. It, one of the things that have struck me is that there's that yes, we're talking is uh, how much of the 
regular common coping mechanisms that we always like to do. You know, so it's usually to be like, well, have you tried to exercising more? So have mm-hmm. you tried talking to friends more? And all of those regular coping strategies are now out the window for a lot of us, in, in the, or we have to adapt in ways that we just haven't thought. And it really is challenging all of us in a way that is very, yeah, very interesting, I suppose, in a, in a way. I wonder how we'll think about this in, in about five years, 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, if and when we get out of it. Yeah. For students, they've really, we've talked a lot about that. Like it's the little things like, wow, realizing that just the bike ride to lab was like right. a time to relax or being yeah. able to go to the gym on campus or the library to study, um, see your friends at the coffee shop in between classes. Like those mm-hmm. things have all been removed. Helen, you mentioned that uh, about college students' anxiety raising even pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. It seems like there have been a lot of different explanations proposed for that. What do you think is driving those higher levels of anxiety among college students even before the pandemic started? Before the pandemic, we'd noticed rising anxiety for years, and some of it was you know, the big things. This generation is quite aware about environmental impending disaster. They're very aware about racial injustice. And they're aware about the precariousness of the economy. So this was a generation that grew up since elementary school, already worried that if they didn't get to the right college, Mm -hmm. they were doomed, you know? And I Mm -hmm. never felt that when I was that age. So they'd come in having anxiety since, you know, sixth grade or middle school or high school. And so that was pre-existing. And now that sense of insecurity is is quite magnified, of course. How did you get interested in college mental health in the first place? What was your pathway there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such a fun developmental age when you think about so much happens between this sort of maybe the majority of them are 18 to 25. But like I said, our grad students are, you know, up to midlife Um, I'm just really fascinated by just all the growth that happens at this age. And I actually began in hospice and uh, geriatrics (laughs) and found myself working backwards over time because I realized if maybe some of these older adults had gotten more interventions Mm. and education earlier in life, they could have been spared a lot of suffering. So, yeah, so it it is is one of the things we, we think of education we think a lot of education being more about providing, you know, I'll call, I guess, facts, you know, about mm-hmm. sciences, but we don't really do a good job of educating and we're doing it a little bit more now, but we don't do as much emotional education, certainly not in elementary or, you know, high school and definitely not in college when we kind of have this expectation that there are adults and they should kind of be able to handle it. But you're right, developmentally, it's, it's, it's stages, right? And not everybody's in the same place and some people might be ahead in one area, but not others. And that uh, extra education that they may not be receiving, cool. That's that's awesome. And then actually, that ties in a little bit to to our topic, which is the, the approaches that the universities have taken, mm-hmm. which is to bring the students and have you know kind of expect them to behave like the adults they are, um, and uh, you know with diff- with different results and certainly different critique. So I'm wondering what do you think about uh, the universities, the approach that they're taking in the the face of the crisis? Right. I think universities like my own, which are opening a little later, we've still got a week, are definitely learning from the 
kind of make it up as we fly way that some of uni- the other universities have already tried to open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and tried to bring students back. And as we've all seen, that's been highly problematic with a lot of quick closures within weeks, students leaving. Um, so certainly things were not very well planned out. And I granted a piece of that is with COVID-19, like there's so much we don't know. Mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. this is true, right? They, right. They, yeah. We're all scrambling to know. I think on our campus, there's something like 27 or 30 committees dedicated to just trying to figure out wow. the latest information. Yeah. The latest updates from other campuses, the latest science updates. So I get it. We really don't know. But, yeah. you know, the real concerns and the criticism about um, our financial, you know, incentives, taking too much precedence for campuses over just... Mm-hmm safety and logical understanding of especially say 18 year olds that's a legitimate concern and like a a criticism that i think is worth exploring Mm -hmm. i was wondering if you saw yesterday there was kind of a trending topic on twitter about northeastern university dismissing 11 students who were found gathering in a hotel room Mm -hmm. in violation of covid19 policies and Supposedly, they're not going to get their tuition back. And there was a lot of debate about whether, on one hand, you know, they're students, there were 11 of them, people go to college, the reason they're on campus is to socialize and their developmental level. And then on the other hand, that that might be an unrealistic expectation and kind of setting students up to suffer from mental health consequences. And then on the other end, I've heard people say, you know, we just can't use the same guidelines we've used in the past with college. This is a pandemic situation. And then pointing more upward towards higher level government structures in terms of not managing the pandemic and leaving colleges in this tricky situation. What do you think about all of that? Definitely. There are systemic levels to everything, right? This has all revealed the precariousness of how education has honestly Mm. not been funded, Mm. Mm. right? Like uh, if I was the student who's not going to get tens of thousands of dollars of tuition back and and their family, I would have a real problem with that. Like this doesn't seem equitable in scope. Um, However, I I get that many universities are in a very precarious financial situation and there's been very little support and backup and that that's real too. One of the things though, yes, developmentally was uh, have we been asking Yes, they are adults, but they are young adults. And as we now know, they've still got several years of prefrontal cortex development to come along. So, you know, what are we asking them? Does it seem fair to put the burden on students when, you know, there was an article in the Atlantic yesterday, by I think it was Professor Tafiki at UNC, mm. who pointed out, and I thought this was just so real, that while the manifest purpose of a university is education, Everybody knows the latent function of a university is socializing, adulting, finding Mm. your friends, Mm. your network, your life partner. Mm. That's very real. You know, there's so much like I I just want to reflect so many things and um, a couple of things that are jump out. And the first one is um, I feel both comforted and a little terrified (laughs) to hear that Stanford is having that much trouble, too, because I feel like smaller (laughs) institutions like mine Mm. are often looking at other institutions like you know, I would let's call it Schnanford. Uh, <laughs> in, 
to see because we think they have got to have it together. You know, basically they have you know world class everything, and to see you scrambling is like okay, cool. We're not the only ones who are just kind of laying down the tracks for the train as it comes. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like man, if if they're struggling that much, what does this mean for us? So that's it's it's sobering and you know I don't know I don't I don't know I'm sure there's a German word that means terrified and comforted at the same time. I don't know what it is, um, but I have that. <laughs> <laughs> that and also it's really interesting to uh within the development as you're talking about the developmental stages and you're right there is a lot of research showing uh especially the uh, Lawrence Sternberg put an article not that long ago calling it delusional for the students to come back mm-hmm. um and you know he's a, a figure a figurehead in adolescent development and young adult development but also, it, to me, I'm struck by, you know, how much people tend to blame the students. And I'm like, hang on, are you kidding me? Like, we just had Sturges in mm-hmm. in South Dakota. And mm-hmm. the mean age there was like 55 or 60. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those do so. True, true. That frontal cortex was cemented. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and we cannot get these people to, you know, sort of listen to behavior. So it's a really interesting, I think, uh, you know, ageism kind of cutting both ways, I guess, in a way. It's like, oh, yeah, so it's in, in interesting paradoxes, I guess. I'm curious what you two think you would do when you were in college. Do you think you would observe the physical distancing? <laughs> um, honestly, I don't know, you know, like at that age, because people will say things like, oh, I'm in my pod and we're safe. Right. And there's real questions, though, like, well, how trustworthy are your friends? And I, at that age, would not have been able to factor in things like, oh, but my one friend that I'm with might expose his grandparents when he goes home to visit. Yeah. Right. It's not just us. It's not just us on campus, which is, of course, where they're at. It's like this person has grandparents at home or older parents or. I often have to remind students, and I've worked with students, that they themselves have an, are immunocompromised, right? Mm-hmm. We forget mm-hmm. that just because people For are sure. young does not mean they're not vulnerable. And that's a really scary and very painful situation, right? Our ableism. We've had students who's, you know, had, and, and this is where I'm glad to be at a school with some resources, like we've had to, and we've been able to say, even move somebody because they're not in a roommate situation that is maybe safe and their young youngish peers may not actually understand. So yeah, I think it's it's a lot for a young person who's just trying to figure out how am I going to like pass my classes, you know, not be isolated because the isolation is very real. Um, Mm -hmm. I reminded our staff the other day, it's like, well, like I'm at home, I'm child free. I have a partner. Thankfully we get along great. And, you know, mm-hmm. I hold someone's hand every day, at least, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I've had students that I've talked to that have said to me, like, I eat at this table. I work at this table. I watch YouTube on this table. I haven't touched anybody in months. Right. Yeah. So lonely. Yeah, there's a lot. And I'm no psychologist, but I noticed that the pursuit <laughs> did not answer your question directly, but that's okay. We're going <laughs> to I think it's really hard, though. I, no, I, I, I honestly, you, I don't know done? what I would do. Mm-hmm. I have okay, no yeah. idea. And I went to a large state university, Florida State, and I honestly, I don't know. I know one thing for sure. I would be terribly disappointed if I got to college and that was my experience that I was having, even if it wasn't about me. I, I would mm-hmm. mourn the loss 
of all the things you're talking about. I mean, a, a huge part of college for me freshman year was being in the dorm, hanging out at the tables, outside talking to people and all that kind of stuff. And so I do really have a lot of sympathy. And, and you mentioned the loneliness and isolation. And I I worry about that from a suicide perspective as well. I, I know the CDC released that report showing that a pretty large portion, I think it was a quarter of adults ages 18 to 24 were had seriously considered suicide during the pandemic. And I, I'm just so, for people who are working in college mental health, I'm wondering how that is. It just seems like the needs, which were already great, have just gotten so much greater. And that seems like such a hard challenge. Yeah, it's a very scary time knowing that, like I, I've I've told people I've been doing this 20 years and I've never had a year where so many students like literally are using words like existential dread Mm-hmm. And just really and, questioning yeah. the, the the pointlessness. Um, it feels so overwhelming. There, you know, there's so much uncertainty and disappointment. We literally added a Zoom meeting called "Dancing with Disappointment: Surfing Uncertainty," mm-hmm. because this was just the people needed a place to mourn. Like I, you know, canceled my birthday party. My field work abroad was canceled. My, you know plans to be a staff and an RA and earn money and get experience. Like all of this, all of this is gone. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. do I even have a space to process this? And many of them have gone home uh, all over the country or the world. And home is, is not always an easy place at this age in life when you're supposed to be out there sort of finding yourself. And we've had students ask like, you know, with, with intensifying of the need, they're like, are you going to hire more counselors and I'm like uh, actually most campuses have had a hiring freeze mm-hmm. and right. some have had layoffs right. and I'm very concerned about the impact of that yeah it's a it's a tough one because I, I as I think back to the original question by Katie's like I think my my behavior would have been and this is just me I would say there are times that I did stuff down there that I'm like yeah it's consistent with what I've done other times I'm like why would I like why did I do that was the stupidest thing I could have done <laughs> And I think it just depended on the right, like the situation. So if I was with a group of peers or something like, and I was particularly bored or something, I would have done probably a lot more so the time. Like, and then rationalize it at some point and be like, hey, it's okay, I've been good all this week. This week, this Friday, I can go to you know the party now. It'll be fine. And then next thing you know, you're like, well, I'm I've exposed myself. So it'd be, I I don't know that I would be any better at mm-hmm. uh, socially distancing. I don't think I would be particularly reckless, but I don't think I would be also I, that I could it could yeah I could have very easily been me one of those eleven students from Northeastern who just you know everything else they had everything planned they did everything they wanted to go to their college of their of their dreams and then all of a sudden they find a situation that they're bored sad it was like come on and that you know ch- chain of events mm-hmm. that makes you leads you to a decision you're like ah crap completely uncharacteristic of me and there you and there you are. So yeah, it's it's a tough one. It's, you're right. It's almost like impossible to answer. And, and really, I, if you look at it, it's really just it was eleven students gathering together, right? That's normally right. not even that's not like a huge thing. And like you said, one of the vicious things about coronavirus is it you could be ninety five percent of the time very very careful, mm-hmm. but right. just because it's so contagious. Right. And Helen, you mentioned, for example, students who 
even in roommate situations are right. I, you're right. It, it's assumed that because of the age, there aren't vulnerable people or that they're not exposed to vulnerable people. And I just think about the added burden of trying to navigate that amidst everything else. It just seems so difficult. Right. It just, it's one of these things that's affected every aspect of life. And usually when a student has crisis, it's not all at once, right? It might be mm-hmm. a relationship problem, a parent problem, an academic stressor. But now it's like housing, friendships, <laughs> relationships, you know, academics. Um, a lot of them are, a lot of my older students who are about to graduate are really scared about what's the job market going to be like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and of course, people's families are impacted. There are people who are worried about family members who are essential workers or who are not working. Um, and another mental health concern that I have that's going to hit all of us in this country is we already don't do a f- super great job supporting grieving. Mm-hmm. I find Personally, I find that a a very Western cultural Mm. thing. We don't Mm -hmm. like to talk about death. Mm. And we assume, again, that a young college population doesn't have much grief, but they do. Um, Rabbi Patricia at our Office of Religious Life has read studies that 25% or so of college students are grieving or have experienced a loss at any given time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And so we've already seen in these last few months more grief cases and students coming in saying, you know, my uncle died of COVID, mm-hmm. my dad died of COVID, um, or my mom died of cancer, but we couldn't gather because of COVID. Um, and that's so right. I'm really concerned about grief and the complicated grief of COVID and how that's going to impact mental health. It's yeah. so heartbreaking to to think about that. You're right. I one And one of the focus um, areas in my practice is grief. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's people of all different ages. And you're you're right. I think that it can be such a lonely experience already for many people because sometimes they feel like people are avoiding them or they're they're not even sure what's going to help them. And you're right. This is a big challenge. When people are talking about things, is it common for students to bring up? I'm curious. Frustration with. Do they blame themselves in some ways? Do they tend to blame? Are they frustrated with government or leadership for contributing to the conditions that it happened? Where? How do they tend to attribute things when they're talking about their concerns? That's a great question, actually. It's, it's kind of, uh, I find it sort of sweet and sad and not wrong that a lot of them do feel like the adults have failed us. That... You know, Jean Twenge has her book, iGen, that looks at the 96 Mm. and after generation. Mm -hmm. And already there was a a pattern in this generation that they're they're sort of maturing slower and sort of have this, have been raised with this expectation that adults and institutions sort of guide and take care of you to a certain point a little longer. And there's a definite sense Mm -hmm. that like, yeah, as the grownups, we're not, we've done it pretty horrible job Mm -hmm. in terms of keeping them safe, um, financially having been prepared to have any backup should things go wrong, as now they've gone horribly wrong. Also responding to racial justice issues, Mm -hmm. uh, anti-Asian xenophobia, there's just this Mm -hmm. sense that nobody's in charge or in control. And I can't say that's totally wrong. Like, yes, you all are adults and you can make your choices, but it does feel like, and you know, Stanford students are very rule-following and accomplished people, Mm -hmm. and I've had students literally say, I feel like I've done everything that I was supposed to, and yet right. 
it Here has worked out. Yeah. It's a tough one. I, I, you know, I have so many thoughts. And so one of them is, I, I wonder how much in the long term, this generation, you know, it, it'll have, it, it, there's a lot of, you mentioned gene to engine the studies, and there's some data suggesting, because there's, she does a lot of work, sort of narcissism, and whether this generation is more or less narcissism in that, that particular debate. But one of the things that, well, papers that I've looked at in that area, um, talking about the effect that uh, times of plenty tends mm. to have on a generation. So it, 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 like the 80s tended to have people who grew up in the 80s, you know, jobs were plentiful, but like, it's so funny as if we're watching Escapist TV going back to the 80s and like, yeah, wow, holy crap, we really did. We thought we had a lot of problems back then. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, and so those generations tended to be a little more self-indulgent and uh, versus generations that happened to be raised during particular hardship. So the 1930s and we think mm -hmm. of, uh, we think about that archetype, right? The, our grandparents who grew up during the Great Depression who have a very different view towards the world and how they carry themselves. So I'm really interested to see how this, you know, the, the, the political, social effects that this particular pandemic will have on the generation that's, you know, the, the, the adolescent, young adult generation in, you know, 20, 30 years and the, the impact that'll have in society. And it's hard to say where, you know, which way it'll go. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the one thought. And the other thought I had is I, I go back and forth as to, um, sometimes I feel, and this is my kind of immigrant experience. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say my, my, that's the lens sometimes I come to it mm -hmm. is that I do see there's a lot of, um, you know, I, we have a lot of advantages as a society. We have a lot of things, but we also do have a lot of advantages. I'm like, maybe this is a timing, which is going to just kind of force us to not, you know, that's a criticism that I'm sure I'll take, um, is how much, how, how much hardship should there be? You know, the right level of hardship. I'm like, this is too much hard. Please. <laughs> Save your hate mail, psychodrama listeners. This is way too much hardship. I just said a, li a little bit of a correction, just a little bit, you know, more of that. Um, and it's hard. I, I think it's difficult for societies to kind of get that blending in which how much are you putting children in adults uh, in adult roles too early? Uh, and how much are you getting to a point in which you are just kind of basically uh, uh, infantiz infantilizing adults to a degree? And I go back and forth. So I don't know. I, I, those are just kind of thoughts you don't necessarily have to comment on anything. But as you were talking about all that, that's, that's what's coming in my, in my mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm someone who I come from an immigrant working class background, and I have some concerns about one of the slogans I sometimes use with my students. I'm like, you know, if you, um, if you never l learn to fail, you're going to fail mm -hmm. to learn. Mm -hmm. Right. You've got to push yourself to be uncomfortable. You've got to have setbacks or you're not going to grow. And to some degree of hardship, of course, is like necessary to sort of branch out. And yes, perfectionism, for example, is a huge problem. It's like the worst kind of anxiety problem that we had pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. <laughs> that it would be paralyzing. Right. As one student said, like, you know, there's a meme going around. That's a joke. And it's like my parents didn't raise a quitter. They raise someone who's so anxious, I don't even start things. <laughs> <laughs> that really captures the nature of perfectionism so right? beautifully, though. I've got to find that. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say. I, I, I really, like I said, I think the reason is it'll be interesting to see in the next five to ten years as this generation comes more into um positions of power and so, and so more actively. So, and they're incredibly socially active. I'll have to say. It, a lot of the energy, as many as many other social movements uh, have been, 
the the youth of today has stepped up to the moment in in many many ways mm-hmm. and that's that's honestly it's incredibly it's, it kind of fills you a little bit with hope um so i don't know yeah i don't i don't know how to even know how to finish that thought so it's a it's a tough one it's an interesting dichotomy uh, and it'll be interesting to see where we end up Right. As someone said, like previous generations and survivors of war and stuff would still do things like hoard food or, you know, be very frugal. And I definitely do wonder what will happen to this generation. Like we're only a few months in and we talk about the before times and how different Mm -hmm. was. And I think, yeah, we're probably going to hoard toilet paper until we're senior citizens, (laughs) you know, Um, and hand sanitizer like forever. Um, But there's also that piece of I think it's forced everybody of all ages to look at what is maybe not essential that has fallen away, you know, yeah. that in a way we've all been more focused on social relationships, on realizing how much racial injustice there is because we're not just out there blathering away our time like mm-hmm. shopping or, you know, um, just doing all these other things that would be distractions. It's really forced us down to, yeah fundamentals yeah to try to figure out yeah what is truly really important and it's this trifecta of you know a political social and a public health crisis that really mm-hmm. has forced our face to into it into it and like you have to do something about these things because you are now at a rupture point that's how it feels and yeah and as as you as students are in the university they feel that pressure intensely so yeah it's it's something that i will say you know, no matter what i i was lucky in many ways that I was able to focus on my studies and I have other things going on personally in my life while I was going through college. But this, this is, I cannot imagine, I'll use myself as an example, if I was going through uh, having to deal with immigration difficulties, school, social life, and a pandemic, I'm like, and I know there's students out there who are doing that right now. Yes. And they have all those interests. I'm like, my life, you know, as there's like, it was difficult, it was annoying, but this is just a layering of things that is just intense. So yeah. yeah, it's it's pretty 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 tough. I think it was just was it just last month that we had the the ICE proposal that students would lose their visas. Oh my god, that one. yeah uh, yeah. It was just horrifying that entire week before you know yeah. MIT and Harvard started the lawsuit and Stanford mm-hmm. joined and other schools joined. But that week, the calls we had from panicked international students right. that their entire life's work and plans were on the line if they didn't risk their health by showing up for an in-person class right yeah that was just what, what yes yet another one of just short-sighted very reactionary move by this administration but yes it just strikes me as how difficult it is for therapists right we can kind of validate people and try to problem solve and things like that but it just shows to me, this has been a very humbling experience as a therapist. I mean, I, mm. I like to think I was pretty humbled before about <laughs> limitations of therapy. I think that it can cause great changes in people's lives. I've been, I've really enjoyed being part of people's journeys as they find happiness and new ways to cope. Mm-hmm. But there's always this limitation of some of the struggles that you can't deal with in the therapy room or that are limited, you know, access to healthcare, access to housing, discriminatory laws. And when you have something like that, the threat of of having to leave if you're not going to in-person class, to me, it just is all the more humbling because 
it feel it can feel kind of powerless as a therapist. Are you worried about therapist burnout and facing mm. all of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you visit some therapist chat rooms <laughs> or Facebook groups right now, they're burnt out. Mm. People are burnt out. Um, it's emotionally more draining doing therapy, say on Zoom, right? I mean, I had written my essay mm. like, mm-hmm. yeah, pixels of empathy about like trying to will yeah. this like. <laughs> empathy and presence across you know a computer screen and it's it's definitely not the same as an in-person therapist and yes the fact that therapists aren't getting the same rewards of like oh you have you know test anxiety i'm giving you skills you're you're practicing them i'm seeing you get better i mean now we're doing the work of this is really bad in like six different areas of your life it's not going to get better anytime quick (laughs) Mm-hmm. how are we doing with that um it's one of the reason even a lot of therapists i know don't like to do grief work you know someone who does that katie you know because grief mm-hmm. is not something you can fix mm-hmm. right there's nothing you can do to make this loss better and you have to be able to tolerate and hold like all that intense emotion and be there and guide them and yeah just help people survive when so much is out of control and I feel like I've been leaning a lot on my counseling psychology and social work mm-hmm. colleagues in terms of how we approach this. Like, I can do this for you emotionally, but we need to do the social work thing and get you some mm-hmm. resources and teach you to advocate. <laughs> and we need to talk about systemic factors that are playing into this. You know, like you're not just imagining this depression, like you are really actually facing systemic oppression. What can we do to fortify you for that? That's all very real right now. I think that can actually make a huge difference too, because one of the themes that I've seen in patients for all different types of concerns is worrying that like they're, they shouldn't be feeling the way they're feeling. They shouldn't be feeling upset. And sometimes you can just see them feel a little more ease that they're perceiving the world in a fairly clear fashion that, you know, that they are not just thinking negatively or being overly pessimistic. And it's been, I think with therapy, of course, what feels most effective is when you can completely decrease that and address the problems and make things better. That's, I think that's important. So it's a shift, but I do see a role of therapy in that, I should say, even though it's it's really different. But I, I loved what you wrote, Pixels of Empathy. I'll link to that in the show notes because I really just, I related to it so much. And I thought that for therapists to write these types of things, I think that's part of what's going to be necessary for therapists to keep their well-being good enough to continue doing our jobs, which I think are going to be needed for some time. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, all so essential t- workers, like how do we keep them all from burning out? Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think that there's, you know, every crisis also presents an opportunity. So I would I, as mm-hmm. when I put this in a, in a historical context. I would like to believe that we're going to come out of this better. Uh, and that's so why I think about, you know, times in the past where we've had similar crises and we've been more divided in many ways before hard as it might be to believe. And, you know, I keep just kind of repeating Barack Obama's voice and like we're kind of marching to a more, a more perfect union. <laughs> and it's hard to see it in the middle of it. So I'm just that's kind of the, the, the hope that I have. 
Um, and as it relates to like therapy and stuff like that, um, I do think that there's Zoom is exhausting. You know, like teaching over Zoom is just like it, the, the, the way we've had to reinvent ourselves. Um, but I do hear sometimes people are like, you know, I really kind of like this thing. Like there's things about my own teaching that I'm like, you know what, I'm going to do more of that because I actually like it. I don't know if I would keep all of Zoom and um, all together, but there's some aspects of it that work. But it's some things about therapy that are helpful that you you now have access to people in ways that maybe you didn't before. And you get to people who do. I have a friend who does therapy with um, children with anxiety. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, they're, what they're seeing is that the exposure exercises are becoming even more effective mm-hmm. because they're doing the exposure at their house and they can see it. And I'm like, that's cool. But on the other hand, there is something to be said about this emotional connection. And certainly the one that I had with my students being in the classroom and being able to talk to them and there's a smile and like explain, you know, staying after class and just chatting more and walking to my office while talking more about the class and see how jazzed and excited they are about it, as opposed to towards the end that everybody's like, okay, boop, because you just cannot wait to get off of Zoom and you're like, ah, uh, and that's lost. So there's this kind of double-edged sword that I am uh, still dealing with it, I guess. And I can imagine it's the same for therapy. Mm-hmm. Definitely for therapy and just living life in this new normal, right? Um, one of the things I've tried to get students to think about, well, whenever we talk about not so good coping, so there's been a lot of um, binge eating, a lot of drinking, right? Um, and, and then people get in that awful cycle that they feel bad about themselves for doing that. And it's like, okay, let's let's not judge ourselves for feeling bad and, and needing comfort because that's a real thing. But let's try to build up the alternatives, like more things in your toolbox or your menu. Um, so that's something I think we're all needing to do. Um, and then as for institutions, that's been my thought too, was like, you can't just tell students like, okay, we're taking away all these things that you loved about being on campus. I think we got to do more about like, and what are the alternatives? Mm-hmm. Right? So I think our graduate life office like created care packages for people oh. who are on campus. I'd read about the government of South Korea giving people boxes with like, yeah ramen noodles and even like a house plant and snacks like yeah well the response has been way 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 i mean it's like probably top two three government responses to it they really have done an outstanding job Mm -hmm. compared to our more kind of piecemeal kind of haphazard approach yeah we're really seeing the downside of maybe this extra individualism yeah what kind of advice do you have for students who are struggling with these mental health issues if they're just feeling stuck and and can't think of alternatives for coping in a healthy way with these mm-hmm. types of issues. Yeah, I mean, normally this time of year, I'd be going to all kinds of events all over campus for orientation. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I do there besides like, here's the things that are available to you is I really try to talk to them about from a health perspective, right? Early intervention is everything. Especially if they're able to get, if they're on a campus that has, for example, counseling or wellness coaches or all of the above or community centers, I'm like, take full advantage of it. You don't, unlike in private insurance in this country, you don't have to wait until you have a clinical diagnosis. Come early, Mm. you know, like prepare early. I've told a lot of people, our current situation reminds me of, you know, I've grown up in Northern California all my life. You mm-hmm. gotta prepare the earthquake, earthquake, mm-hmm. pro- you know, disaster kit. Yeah, you have the kit ready. <laughs> yeah, you don't do that like when it happens, you know, and set those things in place. 
because yeah, there are uh, resources available to college students that that can be a plus that are not always available to people in the community. But if you don't reach out for it, you know, it's, it's actually quite detrimental. And we do have students who wait until they're in quite severe crisis because um, they just try to handle it themselves. I think creating community and finding purpose is huge. You know, sometimes when they're working on a cause that they really care about, that's motivating in a way that when we're feeling really stuck and not quite able to do all the things for ourselves, but maybe because this is something I care about and we work on together, and then not just college students, even all of us, right? Sometimes the self-care, like if I'm going to eat well or exercise, it really helps to have a buddy or someone to do that with, even if it is on Zoom. Or even if it's a distanced walk around campus, um, mm. they've even done like distanced cooking or mm. I've had students who literally made a friend on Zoom for every lunch. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I, that's so nice because I think that uh, with either perfectionism or if you're if for people struggling with depression or anxiety, they can not willfully but automatically fall into this kind of all or nothing thinking, well, I can't do the things I normally do, so I guess I'm not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. And so I like what you're talking about, and it might, maybe it wouldn't be the same to have lunch with your friend on Zoom as meeting them in person, but it's better than not having lunch with your friend. And I think Mm -hmm. that something that's nice is they might be surprised. I know that even as a psychologist, sometimes I'll do something I recommend, like, take a walk, call a friend. And I'm like, oh, that actually worked. I guess I, <laughs> I guess I, my recommendations make sense. Not that, that I came up with them originally, but it is kind of funny that you can still be surprised that those simple things can actually make a difference in your day. Right. Definitely. It's like anti all or nothing thinking, um, anti judging yourself, you know, like that's the thing, you know, is I'm like, how did we get to this point in our culture where, Having normal feelings and needs are, is somehow seen as a bad thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? When I'm like, of course you are less productive right now. Of course you, you know, might feel lonely or whatever. Like, given the situation, like, how could it be different? And like, that's okay. Let's not make it worse by now judging yourself. And yes, I would much rather see my friend in person at the gym or for coffee, but over Zoom, it's still some laughter or some socializing a little bit that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah, I, I was, I've always commented to Katie that it's just actually part of my self care. Is like, oh my god, I like I, it's a time that like I, I know that I, I know that I'll have some laughs. I know that I'll have some intellectual stimulation and interesting conversation. Well, again, that's kind of part of like, okay, that that helps me. And I'm like, okay. That gets me ready for for another week or so, so it's always good. And I and I really like the uh, the whole. I'm almost taking notes. I'm like, okay, so don't judge yourself. Okay, okay, okay. I won't do that. And then no, no black and white thinking. Got it. Got it. Behavioral, behavioral activation. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Got to do all those things because it, it is easy. I I have to say it's almost like uh, as I said, like you, you can give all this advice and talk talk to people about it. But I can definitely think of many, multiple times in several days that I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go out for a ride today. I'm like, uh, and it's dark already. Forget it. <laughs> And then I feel like funk after it. I'm like, oh, I should have gone out. Oh, why didn't I do it? I'm like, I'm blaming myself. I'm like, and there goes that cycle. So yes, if it's easy for people who are psychologists to do it, I can only imagine what it must be for younger people who are, you know, starting to learn these tools. Mm-hmm. They they really have sort of this mentality, and I I think our educational system, as well as you know, sometimes parenting, has really played into this like 
oh, I'm so proud I can do all-nighters and push myself so hard. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, actually, that's kind of silly because you should learn how to take good care of your body and mind because this is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. yeah, it's so funny. I was talking to a few, especially when you talk to European colleagues or people from Europe, had a friend <laughs> visit and her husband is Dutch. And he's just talking like, you guys, why are you, why do you guys work? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, you're right. There's a certain kind of just pride to almost burn the candle at both ends. And yeah, I, I, and again, I try not to be judged, you know, remove judgment from it. It's like, there may be some advantages to it. You certainly get a lot of advances, but you, it, it comes at a price, and that price is is hefty. Yes, it's a real price, and I really, you know, portray it as everything's just about figuring out balance. Because actually, if we get out of our own way, and if things are not, you know, obviously there will be terrible conditions in life. But fundamentally, our body and minds. They're self-healing systems. Mm-hmm. You know, they're made to reset if we give them enough rest and care. Um, and I actually send a lot of students to watch uh, Dr. Sapolsky's video for why zebras don't get ulcers. Yes. <laughs> yes <laughs> right? Sure. I'm like, hey, look at this video. He's really entertaining. Plus, this is why you're coming into our clinic with panic attacks, canker sores, gastritis, migraines, you know, mm-hmm, like you can't treat your body this way for years and not think that it's going to create like symptoms. We have some, um, edu- some professors and some, some college counselors who listen to our podcast. I was wondering, you've given such great advice. Is there anything that we didn't get to that you might add that would be useful for them to know? I know that a lot of Professors are concerned about balancing their own mental health needs and their students. Mm-hmm. Right. I definitely our staff and faculty are in this too. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think for them, it's it's the same kinds of things, right? Like doing the little coping skills proactively as you can, having a toolbox, right? Most of us have like two or three things we love to do the most. And that's great. But in times like this, I'd like... I tell people I'd like you to compile a full toolbox or a full menu of little things, you know, because maybe right now I don't have time to take a hike, but I can do the like four minute breathing, you know, or make the tea or something. Um, And that's for ourselves. I actually find that students love it when their professors are candid about being human. (laughs) Like they love hearing about like, oh, wow, my professor had to do this too for their stress or like, yeah, they're juggling what it's like to be a parent. Like it makes them human. It makes it normalized that we're all in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been plenty of stuff about how inhumane some professors have been about grading or attendance. Mm. And I think people need to really think about that, right? Those of us who are in a more stable maybe home or financial or life stage really got to remember like what it's like to be a student who you know there's so much uncertainty socially their career even where they live Mm -hmm. right now a lot of students are freaking out about I mean literally like someone said if I don't sign this behavior compact at my school that also impacts my housing and my health care Right. Right. Everything like the level of stress they're on. Like this is not the year to be a stickler on these kind of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. We want yeah. them to learn um, the academic material, but we also want them to learn like the bigger picture in life. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's a lot of my colleagues have been in the meeting when we have faculty meetings and a lot of it's, you know, what is it that, what is the nugget and what is the one thing that I want them to remember from this and that's kind of trying to focus on that while trying to be mindful of, you know, all the competing demands that they have and uh, try to take care of ourselves. And it really has been uh, a lot of juggling, a lot of very thoughtful, very interesting conversations with colleagues and kind of what they're doing. And it's, and again, same thing, kind of, <laughs> whatever that German word for both comforted and terrified is, um, that is, you know, we I feel both comforted, like, okay, I'm not the only one who's feeling this frazzled. And I'm like, holy crap, we're all in this boat. Um, yeah. So it's interesting times for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, normalizing. And the same thing, like, norm- yeah, normalizing for them that on the one hand, there's huge terrifying things like what's the job market going to be like when they graduate. And then there's also the like being grounded in the gratitude of daily moments, like, how wonderful that like I could take a walk today or somebody has been baking, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That we're in this weird place of both of these things happening at once. I, I like what you said about talking about comparing the approach to the, to grief where it's kind of about accepting, acknowledging pain and finding moments of joy and gratitude rather than expecting either for students or for ourselves to just think optimistically and positively and kind of, you know, it's, it's about being realistic and saying, okay, this is the reality, but how can I find a way to take care of myself and, and connect with others despite the hardships that I'm facing right now? I, I think that's such a great framework and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Mm-hmm. Thanks. I mean, we've had students who are reading about radical acceptance you know, and also some of the CBT things. And I've often also pointed out, like, a lot of those fundamental thoughts have existed for, you know, thousands of years in Buddhism, right, that mm-hmm. we, we have to accept that some of life is going to be suffering. And while that's hard, and, you know, it's suffering, but fighting it makes it worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Judging right. ourselves, right. fighting it makes it so much worse. And we can, you know, rather than like, what is the radical acceptance or the Buddhist acceptance? And then, okay, what are the little things I can do in the meantime to to handle this and like surf it? You know, I always talk to students like, think mm-hmm. about surfing on top of mm-hmm. the waves. Don't For just sure. stand there and get smashed by the waves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, such that's a, good a really good. Yeah, it's such a good California analogy. I'm trying to think of a North Dakota equivalent. Let's see. You just ride those wheat fields. Broncos. <laughs> well, there are a lot of lakes here, although there's not a lot of surfing on those lakes. lakes. So. Do you see that? <laughs> the wind. Yeah. yeah, it is very windy here. So there you go. I'll, I'll keep thinking. Use the kite and then <laughs> use that wind to fly your yeah. kite. Do people kiteboard? <laughs> Um, <laughs> probably. <laughs> I just haven't seen it. That would be, that would work though. <laughs> That's a good way to work. They do like tube and jet ski. <laughs> so it's not quite the same as surfing, but I'll, I'll work on this on, I'll, I'll workshop this off the air so that you don't have to do it. But I like that point. I'll, and I'll link in our show notes to some radical acceptance type resources too. If you have any favorites, mm. feel free to send them over just in case our listeners want to check those out too. Okay. Usually you end up with like a, a positive note if there's any kind of positive, anything positive regarding, you know, the, anything you've learned in the past through the crisis or any, any words of wisdom that you may have for us or and the listeners, that would be great. Yes. No, it's been so great to talk with you all and um, to know that there's 
a lot of people who really do care. So maybe that's the only positive that's coming out of it is for many of us, it has been a chance to appreciate and reconnect with the importance of community and sort of focus on what's most important. And I hope we do take that kind of mindset when when things do resume and get a little bit back to normal, which eventually they will. <laughs> my my family's from Taiwan and people are sort of back to their lives there now. And eventually we will get back, but I hope we don't lose sort of the connection and appreciation for at the core what really matters and what we can do to keep each other healthy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise today. I really enjoyed talking to you. I know our listeners will too. Thank you so much. Fun. Yeah. Thanks for getting the message out there. That's why a huge thing was like, as a clinician, I realized like we just need to do more to get this out to, Mm -hmm. yeah, wider audiences. Totally. That's a big motivation of uh, this podcast and kind of like Leo mentioned in terms of a self-care thing, but also some purpose, like you mentioned earlier, finding a way to just share information with people. And, and hopefully this is another time where from this crisis, we can get more innovative about finding ways to get mental health information out to people. Yes, for sure. That's definitely been true. (laughs) I've been forced to. Mm -hmm, Exactly. (laughs) Thanks so much. 